Shall we pray? Our Father, as we continue in prayer, we would ask that you would then bless your word to that end for the growth and purity and life of this church, of Christ's church. Our Father, we would pray these things, asking that you would be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I would invite you to open God's word with me to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I would also encourage you to have 1 Thessalonians 5 and Matthew 16, as we'll be looking at them later. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. John Stott writes, some people construct a Christianity which consists entirely of a personal relationship to Jesus Christ and has virtually nothing to do with the church. They've given up on the ecclesiastical institution as hopeless. But we need to beware lest we despise the church of God and are blind to his work in history We may safely say that God has not abandoned his church. He is still building and refining it. And if God has not abandoned it, how can we? The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God, end of quote. Nothing more important than the church of Jesus Christ. It's the center purpose of history. It's the central purpose for all of creation, the glory of Christ in his church. That's the theme of the whole book of Ephesians, the glory of the visible church of the triune God. The church is the fullness of Christ. The church is the new temple for the Lord of all nations. The church is the glory of God. The church is the display of God's wisdom. The church is the bride, the one that Christ loves and has died for. Last time we looked at the church from God's perspective, and today we want to continue in that series, the church from our perspective. What are the evidences of a true church? We want to remind ourselves of two clarifications. Clarification number one is we must use the biblical definition of what church is, not our ideas, our opinions, to define what a church is. But that's the problem, because the word church is very seldom defined as people use it. One person might mean by the word church, well, that's the building that you go to on Sunday mornings. Somebody else might use it as, well, that's you belong to a church, as you would a service organization. For some people, the word church is just plural for Christians. Where two or three are together, they say, well, that's the church. No, that's not the church. That's two or three believers who are together in the same place, but that's not a biblical definition of the church. We need to understand what the church is according to the scriptures, not according to common usage or our thoughts or opinions. That's the one clarification. And the second clarification is is that when we speak of the church, 
biblically, it will almost always be the visible church. I only know of one situation, one verse in the New Testament that speaks of the word church used in the sense of the invisible church, God's elect. Every other time, it's to the visible church. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. (laughs) When you see the visible church, you're talking about people. You're talking about an institution. You're talking about members and officers and worship and sacraments and, if you will, a budget. (laughs) If somebody says to you, well, they're a Christian, but they're not a member of a Bible-believing church and hadn't even thought that it's important, they're trying to live as part of the invisible church, not the visible And the Bible does not allow for that. It isn't taught in Scripture. So with those two clarifications, today we want to ask the question, well, then how do you recognize a true, visible church where God is displaying his glory? Because the Bible speaks of false churches. The Bible speaks of those who there's a lampstand will be removed, Revelation 3.11. Some have even declined to the point of actually being called the synagogues of Satan. So what's a true, visible church? From our perspective, What are the marks? We have a Christmas ornament. We always get a good chuckle and every time it's pulled out of the box and put on the Christmas tree and again this year. It's an old Avon Christmas ornament. Looks like a wax cookie. Almost 40 years old now. And it has three sets of teeth marks in it. (laughs) All three of our kids, when they were three or four years old, thought that they were alone in the room. And here's this ornament hanging on a Christmas tree. It looks like a cookie. And they go and take a bite of a wax cookie. And their teeth marks are there from perpetuity. <laughs> looks like a cookie, but it's not a cookie. Every group that calls itself a church is not a church. The Unitarians, the Mormons... Liberal churches, all evangelical churches. I'm told there's 20,000 denominations in the United States. Are they all true churches? How do you tell a true church from something that looks like a church, but historically, but it's not a church? Historically, from the fourth century on, the Church of Jesus Christ has professed the Nicene Creed, I believe, in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But during the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Church still professed the apostles and the Nicene Creed, but they'd left the biblical doctrine of the gospel of salvation. So more was needed to be said, well, what's the mark of a true church? The Nicene Creed is only describing the church in a general way. It doesn't get specific enough. What is a true church? And so the Protestant reformers were concerned to identify from Scripture the marks of a true church. Calvin and Luther and Bullinger stated that the two marks of a visible church were the pure preaching of the word and second, the pure administration of the sacrament. And so the Belgic Confession and then the Westminster Confession added the third mark, church discipline. So those are the three marks that we need to recognize a true church of Jesus Christ. That's not all a church needs. There are many other marks of a good and healthy church. Church needs prayer. Church needs evangelism and missions and nurture and diaconal ministry and love and fellowship. But these three are the minimum. You have to have all three to have a definition of what is a true church of Jesus Christ. No definitions. Why? 
because these three are reflecting Jesus Christ as the head of the church in his three offices. Jesus Christ is the prophet and the priest and the king as head over the church. And in those three ways, you will find the preaching of the word and the sacraments and discipline to reflect the three offices of Christ as our prophet and priest and king. These three marks of the church focus on what God does for us rather than what we do for God. God serves us through the marks of preaching and the sacrament. End of quote, Horton. So these three marks are going to display the very presence of Christ as the head of the church, as a true church of Jesus Christ. These are the three marks then. Is Christ the prophet? Is Christ's word faithfully preached? Second, is Christ the priest? Are Christ's sacraments biblically administered? And third, is Christ the king? Is Christ's rule consistently applied in discipline? How do you know a true church of Jesus Christ? Well, here's the first question. Is Christ the prophet? Is Christ's word faithfully preached? And 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Church is, first of all, a pillar. I the ancient architecture was the columns that held up these huge buildings. Today, think of the steel frames that hold up these skyscrapers. Perhaps the mention of the pillar is also because in those days, they were the community bulletin boards. That's where all the notices were posted for the people as they passed by on market day could read things. Maybe it's both ideas to call the church the pillar of the truth to uphold and to declare God's truth. She's also the buttress of the truth, or the NAS has the support. The adjective of this word it means steadfast. It's the idea that the church of God is, the, is God's means of defending and protecting it, the caretaker of his truth. As Calvin writes, the church is the faithful keeper of God's truth in order that it may not perish in the world. It's not the sense that whatever the church teaches is the truth. Church is dependent upon the word to proclaim the truth. The church doesn't determine the truth. The Bible determines the truth, and the church only proclaims it. The church is to be founded on Christ, who is the truth, the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. So any particular church is only the pillar and ground of the truth as she upholds God's truth, and the reverse is true. Any particular group that does not have this mark of the church, the true preaching of God's word, is no longer a church of Jesus Christ. The mark of the true church is, first of all, the scripture, the word that's faithfully preached and believed. As the church father Tertullian said, they are true churches which hold to what they received from the apostles. Larger Catechism 43, Christ executes the office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in a variety of ways of administration, the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. And therefore, the true mark of the church will be to declare the truth of God's word. Bible requires this mark. Jesus requires this mark. The apostles required this mark. The Bible requires this mark of hearing and believing the word as a test of true followers of Jesus Christ, because saving faith ordinarily comes by the hearing and the preaching of the word. Romans 10, 14. 
We're born again through the hearing of the word, 1 Peter 1.23. It's the word that cleanses the church and renews her, 2 Timothy 3. The scriptures of the church's sword, Ephesians 6. Her bread, Matthew 4, a lamp and a light for her path. Any group or any person who forsakes the, quote, sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, as found in Scripture, forsakes the standard of godliness and truth, 1 Timothy 6, 3. The Bible requires this mark. Jesus requires this mark of hearing and believing the word as a test of a true follower of Christ. Because what's true of the individual must be true of the group. Jesus said, John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Abide in me and my word in you, John 15, 7. Because my sheep hear my voice, John 10, 27. And Jesus affirms the word of God as written is all true that cannot be broken, John 6, 10, 35. Not one jot or tittle will pass from the law to all's fulfilled, Matthew 5, 18. Therefore, Jesus said, if you hold my teachings, you are my disciples, John 8, 31. That's why Calvin describes scripture as God's royal scepter. Christ rules us by his word. The Bible requires this mark. Jesus requires this mark. The apostles required this mark. Their ministry was described as the ministry of the word, Acts 4.31. The growth of the church is described as the word of God was spreading, Acts 6.7. Because the scriptures are inspired. They are the word of God. The apostle John would say very strongly, 2 John 2.9, 2 John 9. If you do not have the teachings of Christ, you do not have God. And this is why the Reformers saw that the primary mark of a true church was the faithful preaching of the scriptures. Because the other two standards, sacraments and administration of discipline, flow from your understanding of the Bible. It becomes the greatest mark. In that sense, Herman Bovink said the true church has really only one mark, the word, which is variously administered and confessed in the church's preaching and sacraments and discipline and life. So a college graduate has finished his degree and moved across the country, a new town, new job, wants to find a church. What do you look for first? Primary must be, what is that church's statement of faith or confession of faith? What do they believe? Are the scriptures upheld as the infallible and errant word of God and faithful preaching? Not primarily do they have a band, do they have a choir, do they have a youth group, do they have a new building, do they have a food bank for the community? Do they have people my age? It's within five minutes of driving. All of those things can be factors, but not primary. Primary has to be, how do you know a true church of Jesus Christ? And the answer is, is Christ the prophet? Is God's word faithfully preached? The second question is, how do you know a true church of Jesus Christ? Is, is Christ the priest? Are Christ's sacraments biblically administered? Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, they're appropriate marks for the Church of Jesus Christ because they can't be divorced from the Word. You go disciple the nations, baptizing and teaching them. Luther had four forms of the Word. He referred to the eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Second, the incarnate word, which we celebrate this time of year, Jesus Christ, very God, very man. Third, the inscripturated word, the Bible. The fourth word, the shouted word, preaching. We might add to Luther's four words, a fifth word, the sacraments, as Augustine and Calvin referred to them because they are the outward signs and seals of the word preached. They are God's notary of his written word. And so therefore those sacraments are biblically administered in the way that Christ commanded them to be administered as the second mark of the church. Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution there, a church of God exists. John Calvin. So that helps us if there's no sacraments administered, then it's not a true church of Jesus Christ. It's as Christ commanded that we administer the sacraments. So for example, the Salvation Army, as much as they're a very useful and good group, they're zealous for helping the poor in the name of Christ, they do not practice baptism or the Lord's Supper. So they cannot be included as a church of Jesus Christ, a group of professing believers, certainly in a helpful service organization, but not a church. How do you know a true church of Jesus Christ? Is Christ the prophet? Is Christ the priest? Third, is Christ the king? Is Christ's rule consistently applied in discipline? Turn over just two pages to the left, 1 Thessalonians 5. 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. When one puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they're transferred out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of his Son. And then we joyfully obey Jesus Christ as our Savior and King and Lord and Master as individuals and as a group. What God requires from the individual, he's requiring from the group. And so Jesus would say, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So a true church must obey Christ's rule, enforce his laws in obedience and submission to the king. Do you see then how this mark of discipline flows from the word? 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Church discipline flows from the word. It can only be by the word. It can only be according to the word. Not man's ideas. Sadly, there are examples of church discipline that's abusive and discipline is wrong. It has to be according to the word of God and all meekness and humility and slowly calling us to repentance. But it comes from the preaching of the word. 
Preaching is not merely to tell stories. It's not a seminar. It's not a lesson. It's not sharing. It's not to make us necessarily feel upbeat. Certainly there's joy. But preaching is calling for a response because it's the authority of Christ and his word. Preaching calls us to submit to God's truth, to change, to discipline our lives for holiness. Church discipline flows from the word. Church discipline flows from the sacraments. In baptism, parents take vows to do what? To raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to teach them the scriptures. Church discipline is also seen in the fencing of the Lord's table, to come to the Lord's table. There must be the discipline of self. Are you growing in holiness, repenting of your sins? In the later stages of church discipline, the church might even need to suspend someone from communion, excommunication, because they're not obeying the authority of Christ. Church discipline flows from the sacraments. And third, church discipline flows from church membership. Turn to Matthew 16 and verse 19. Matthew 16 and verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And turn over the page, Matthew 18, 17, and 18. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Is Christ king of his church? Yes. Is he sovereign over all things? Yes. He gave to his apostles and then to each generation of the elders the keys of the kingdom. And these keys of the kingdom have two functions. They have to bind, to receive into the church, and to loose, to put out of the church. So the elders, as they're functioning in in this sense of discipline, they receive a person into the visible church by baptism and then a credible profession of faith to be nurtured and discipled and matured in the faith. That's why you will not find one Bible verse that says this person joined the church, active. It's always passive. You are received into the church. You do not join the church. Because it's a reflection of the gospel. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by God's grace alone. That he in mercy has stooped to the likes of us and given us the new birth. We are saved passively by his grace, not by our works. And so to to be brought into his church, you don't join the church. The Holy Spirit adds to his church, Acts 2.47. Conversion is described as the Lord adding to his church. If a foreign person wants to become a U.S. citizen, you just don't decide to join. You must apply for a green card and immigration, and you must be granted the right to be a citizen. That's what Jesus gives to his apostles and to the elders, the keys of the kingdom, the green card, if you will the entrance into Christ's visible church. And then to loose, the elders in discipline need to put a person out of the visible church who's refusing to be nurtured and discipled and matured in the faith. There's not repentance for sin. 
There's a refusal to obey God's word. And so the elders are commanded, 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And then we as the congregation are exhorted, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as though would those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. But you see, neither the elders nor the congregation can do that unless the believer has, first of all, willingly submitted to that arrangement. And secondly, that the elders have agreed to oversee that believer. And we call the term for that when we mutually take vows, church membership. Church membership is primarily a covenantal relationship of spiritual care. It's the fatherly nurture of children. And therefore, church discipline can only be performed when the person is a member under covenant with the church, willing to receive discipling and correction and nurture. I hope none of you, if you saw an unruly child in ShopRite, would go up and discipline the child. I hope not. Why not? Well, they're not our family. So church discipline, which Christ the head commands to be done, can only be done when one is part of the family. It was common after World War II a movement among neo-evangelicalism to define the church as love, as the dominant mark of the church. We're seeing it again, history repeating itself, and the emergent movement and others who define the church primarily as love and action, care for the poor, and there's no denial that this is a part of the life of the church. We should um, love even more and even greater diaconal work, absolutely. But there's a subtle danger that you cannot deny Christ in any of his three offices and still claim to follow Christ. You can't deny Christ in his three offices and still claim that that's a valid church. It's no longer a true church. Yes, there's many things the church is to be, to be vibrant and growing and evangelism and love and diaconal care and many things. But the three minimum is Christ the prophet, is Christ the priest, is Christ the king. So when somebody has a low view of the visible church, they don't understand Christ as king over the church. They don't understand. They may embrace Christ as savior and even Christ in the realm of truth. But the visible church is the reign of Christ, exercising his government and his authority. Horton put it, where Christ is not king, he's neither prophet nor priest. In all of my 41 years here as pastor, we've had many visitors wanting to be interested in our church, and we thank the Lord for all of them. But I'll tell you what, in 41 years, I've never had a visitor interested in our church ask this question. When is the last time your church did discipline? And what was the issue, and how was it handled? I think that's a very good question. I think that's a very appropriate question, but it's never been asked. I think that's a reflection of the broad evangelical church. Now, for many, it's not even on the radar. How do you know a true church of Jesus Christ? Is Christ the prophet? Is Christ's word faithfully preached 
and believed? Is Christ the priest? Are his sacraments biblically administered? Is Christ the king? Is his rule consistently applied, if necessary, even in discipline? So whether the church is mainline or whether the church is liberal or whether the church is evangelical, if it no longer displays all three marks of the church of Jesus Christ, it's no longer a true church. And so I would exhort a believer, as I have over the years, someone looking for a church, start with the three marks. Don't start with what's their interest in music or people my age. And I would exhort a believer in a group that calls itself the church, not having all three marks, to prayerfully challenge the leadership to change. And if they will not, then to find a church, a true church of Jesus Christ. But I would also exhort all of us to remember these two critical things is that one, it's going to be at times very hard to apply these three marks to any one particular congregation or denomination of Jesus Christ because the visible church is always going to be a mixture of true believers and hypocrites, unbelievers in this age. There's always going to be tares among the wheat, weeds in the flower garden until Christ's return. The Gospels refer to the church as a big net that catches both good and bad fish, Matthew 13. It's only after the net is brought on shore that the fishermen can sort through and separate the good fish from the bad fish, which Christ will do at his second coming, and he will separate the sheep from the goats and the bad fish and the good fish. But until then, the church is going to be a mixture. Westminster Confession 25, this universal church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. Particular churches are more or less pure to the extent to which the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, the ordinances are administered, and public worship is performed more or less purely in them. So the elders are given the keys of the kingdom, but they can only measure according to a credible profession of faith. They don't know the heart. And yes, they are called to exercise the keys of the kingdom, to put out those who are impenitent when that becomes evident, but not all false professions are going to be evident in this age. They will on Judgment Day, but not until then. And so it's going to be very difficult at times to apply these three marks to any one particular church. And the the other reason is it's why it's so difficult to apply these marks is there's never going to be a perfect church until glory. Revelation 25.5, the purest churches on earth are subject to both mixture and error. You notice what it says. Not the least pure churches. It says the most pure church is still subject to a mixture. Well, that's the parallel to each of us, isn't it? When we make profession of faith, we still have many sins. We're repenting of our sins. We're attempting to apply God's word more and more. And so, too, any one particular congregation or whole denomination, they're imperfect. They might be wrong on some teaching. The question is, are they continuing to repent, continuing to conform to the scriptures? John Calvin writes, The Lord is daily at work in smoothing out wrinkles and cleansing spots. From this it follows that the church's holiness is not yet complete. The church is daily advancing and is not yet perfect. It makes progress from day to day, but has not yet reached its goal of holiness. Just as there's no true church that has all everything right, it parallels our own hearts too, doesn't it? 
Just because an individual makes a credible profession of faith, that doesn't mean that now they know all of Scripture. It's a credible profession of faith. They believe the Scriptures are true, and Christ is their Savior. And they're continuing to grow, and so too with the church. It can be a true church without full understanding of the Scriptures. Still have the three marks. A. A. Hodge, the very purest churches are yet very imperfect and will continue so to the end, and that some will become so corrupt as to lose their character as true churches of Christ altogether. So I would exhort us all to be humble and patient. That Using these three marks can be very, very difficult as you apply it to any one particular church or denomination. And the other exhortation to us all is to remember that the primary application of the three marks of a true church is not to measure against them, somebody else. The primary application is to use it to measure moi, us. Are we growing more and more in these three marks? Are we submitting ourselves more and more to the truth of Jesus Christ, to the sacraments become more and more precious to us? Are we grateful for the elders who care for our souls and pray for them? But even to push the application even a little bit more, it's whatever is true of the three marks of a true church has to be the three marks of a true Christian. Are these the three marks for you? Somebody can say that they're a Christian. But do they love the Lord's word? Are they submitting themselves to the truth of God's word? What a challenge this is in the living in the world we are. Is there a joy in finding the sacraments as a means of grace? Are you disciplining yourself for the means of holiness? The three marks of a true church are the three marks of a true believer. Let that be our primary application. There's a church of St. Ignazio in Rome. Inside the building, if you look up, you might be very impressed by a massive cupola rising high above you. It appears to be on eight columns with sunlight pouring in at the top. But if you know the whole story, in 1684, when this church was almost built, The Dominican fathers of a nearby church were protesting that this church was getting too high and it was blocking the sunlight out of their library, and so they stopped building the church. Years later, Andrea Pozzo uh, solved the dilemma. He created a visual deception. He painted on a round 16-meter canvas a picture of a cupola and raised it to the flat ceiling. And for 200 years, it fooled people. That church had a reputation for having the finest cupola in any Roman church. It had an appearance of a beautiful cupola, but in reality, it had none. Some may call themselves a Christian church, but in reality, they don't have the three marks of Church of Jesus Christ. He is not the prophet and the priest and the king. May we as a congregation, may we as a denomination, may we each as individuals be growing more and more in these three marks of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that he is our prophet.
Christ's word is faithfully preached and believed. Christ is our priest. His sacraments are biblically administered and loved. Christ is our king. His rule is consistently applied and obeyed. Shall we pray? Our Father, how we pray for the broader church in this generation, in our country, that there would be a revival. We are so off the tracks, off the rails in so many ways, broadly speaking. How we pray that there would be a return to repentance and to be the worshiping you and the beauty of your holiness, to love your word and to hold that as our absolute truth rather than everyone's son, owning individual truths and feelings governing their lives. So we would pray that for our own denomination, our own congregation, continue to show us ways that we should be repenting and submitting ourselves to growing and maturing. And would you show that for each of us in our own hearts, where we need to even grow more in embracing Christ as our prophet and our priest and our king. How grateful we are for our Savior and that he will apply his word to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.